Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at propellermag. Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast's success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers, or to davidnaman.com slash support, and give your support, and enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, the writer Alexis M. Smith, was born and raised here in the Pacific Northwest. Her debut novel, Glaciers, was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award and is still one of the most popular titles put out by Tin House Books. Alexis Smith is here today on Between the Covers, four years after our first conversation, to discuss her much-anticipated follow-up to Glaciers, Merrow Island, out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Whereas Glaciers was often described as quiet, spare, and introspective, Merrow Island has been called a literary page-turner, an ecological thriller, and a post-earthquake mystery. Library Journal calls it a near-perfect read. Kirkus calls it a stunning work of eco-fiction. And Publishers Weekly, in its starred review, says that Smith's story carries the same heft, descriptive nuance, and narrative spark that distinguished her debut— But this time, she more finely hones her character's emotional rhythm and atmospheric location to create a thoroughly eerie reading experience, capped off with a startling conclusion. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Alexis M. Smith. 
Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So before we talk about the story of Merrill Island, I thought maybe we could orient our listeners to the situation mm -hmm. of the story. Um, one of the most talked about articles of the last year was mm -hmm. the New Yorker article, article by uh, Catherine Schultz, the big one, which yeah. won the Pulitzer Prize, right. which describes uh, the catastrophic, utterly catastrophic earthquake that we're due for in the Northwest, mm -hmm. and um, which we're completely unprepared for, <laughs> probably partially because we don't really have an earthquake culture. They don't happen it, on right. that level it, like they do in Japan and California very often. Mm -hmm. Um, so in Merrill Island, this earthquake has already happened 20 years ago. Right. Um, so tell us what the world is like now. The earthquake has happened. What is what what has happened to the region, and and what has the region done since the earthquake? Right. Well, uh, I, I obviously wrote the book before Catherine's article came out. Um, so I was imagining an earthquake that wasn't maybe necessarily as catastrophic as she describes and she describes sort of a worst case scenario um which is really what got everyone so alarmed i think and interested in the article um i did a lot of the same kinds of research that she did um excepting i didn't have a budget to go out on boats with geologists and things like that and actually see the physical evidence but um i i imagined it was a, a big earthquake um and uh, big enough to, to cause sort of man-made disasters post-earthquake. And these are the kind of things that happen when you don't have uh, preparations for uh, infrastructure and, and just, um, uh, you know, homeowners. And, and so I imagined this uh, up in Puget Sound. And um, Puget Sound is a basin, as you know, and there are lots of islands. And, and I imagined what happened on... Uh, you know, largely what happens in the sound and then also what happens specifically on a couple of islands uh, in the San Juans where um, in my telling, in my story, there is an, um, a petroleum refinery on one of the islands and, um, and the earthquake and, and the subsequent waves that come through the sound uh, devastate those islands by, by causing, um, you know, chemical spills and, and, um, and whatnot. So you make an interesting choice time-wise yeah. <laughs> in the sense that maybe the most obvious choice would be to put the earthquake in the future. Right. Uh, and and you've, you've imagined the earthquake happened in, in the real historical record in the mm -hmm. 90s, right. so 20 years ago, and that the book takes place then in an alternate present instead of mm -hmm. an alternate or imagined future. What right. were you hoping to achieve or what did that give you to shift the timeline that way so that we recognize the world in some respects, like the technology is going to all be recognizable mm -hmm. to us because it's the present tense, but it's right. an alternate present tense because the history for the last 20 years is different. Right. Uh, I mean, the first reason why I didn't write it in the future is that I don't feel like a, a science fiction writer. I feel like there are great science fiction writers out there who, whose imaginations really go into the future in that way. And, and I, I really wanted to just talk about what disasters have been like and and what they will continue to be like if we don't change our ways. Um, and, and and even if we do change our ways, I mean, many of the, the climate-based disasters are sort of set in motion already. But um, so going back in time and imagining a disaster um, like this was really just a way for me to comment on on my my feelings that that we, despite having witnessed these things happening elsewhere in the world, 
um, have not come to grips with it here. And, and how would the world be different if we had already had that earthquake? And I think probably not very much. I think we would still be facing a lot of the same crises here that we, that we are um, facing right now. And um, I think that was just, you know, part of it was also I just wanted to explore the idea that we lived through it. <laughs> Some of us lived through it. Um, I think just to work out my own personal anxiety about the impending earthquake. Mm. And, um, you know, so that was more the personal agenda that I had. But uh, it was really interesting when I uh, pitched this book or my agent pitched this book to editors. Um, I had a, a sort of slew of conversations with editors um, after they had read the first hundred pages or so. And um not all of them, but at, l at least a handful of them um, had to check with me to make sure that this earthquake hadn't actually happened. They weren't sure. And that sort of told me that, that this is the way disasters happen. And it, it, what I suspected was true and that things like Katrina happen and then they sort of dissolve into the common memory of horrible things happening environmentally around us. And, and then we're not really quite sure if something like this actually did happen. Yeah. And there was an earthquake in the Nisqually Basin, what, um, 15 years ago or so. And that was somewhat what I based um, the idea on. Was I, I was here in Portland, but most of my family was still in Seattle. And, and um, we felt it here. I remember the day really vividly. And, you know, so there's this this sense of like, oh, did this happen? It, it may have happened, actually, but um, especially for people who lived across the country and they they maybe didn't are not as connected. And of course, at that point, the, the Schultz article hadn't come out yet. So it wasn't <laughs> in, in the broader imagination of this idea of the Cascadia subduction zone. Yeah. Well, one of the things it did for me emotionally to have it not be a looming disaster, but an already happened disaster was interesting because I remember when you were here talking about glaciers, which shares some of the same concerns around mm -hmm. climate change and environmental destruction. Um, that book feels uh, more elegiac. It's it mm -hmm. feels a little bit more like it's um, mourning a world that's slipping away, and right. we're we're not going to be able to stop this uh -huh. from happening. The glaciers are mm -hmm. going to disappear. Right. And um, and this book because the catastrophe isn't looming. But behind us, it feels like it shifts the focus emotionally towards, I, I don't know if I want to say the word hope, but towards what, what do we do mm -hmm. now? Yeah. Because, and I remember when you were talking about glaciers, you said that the first drafts of that book were very despairing. And then you, you mm -hmm. had your child and, mm -hmm. and you shifted the focus to hope yeah. more. <laughs> but it feels because of the, sh the placement of the earthquake, it feels like it's even shifted more in the, in Merrill Island. Does that seem right? Yeah, I to think you? that's pretty accurate. Um, but I, I think that it was a little bit selfish of me to set the earthquake in the past. Like I, at, at times I wondered if I wasn't risking enough just as a writer to push myself into the future and imagine imagine a future where this happens. Um, say, imagine the actual event unfolding at some point in my lifetime. Um, but I will say that it really did help me um, come to terms with that that anxiety and um, and maybe imagine imagine scenarios in which people I know or pe types of people that I know will be able to sort of rally afterwards. I had sort of like a double question around it because given that we've talked before for four years ago and your book, your first book came out maybe five years ago. Mm -hmm. And in that interim, we've continued to be at war and mm -hmm. 
um, the country as a whole and and the globe as as a global community hasn't come to grips in right. any meaningful way around climate change. So there, if yeah. you were to look at our species five years later, you wouldn't have hope that we were solving the solution, yeah. solving hope, the problem. Hope is not necessarily the word that I would use um, for Marrow Island or for my mindset when I was writing it. Um, but I guess what my, my question was <laughs> around it was, is it harder as these things continue to write something that's about, well, what do we do? Or does it feel even more important and more vital and you feel more compelled to because things aren't getting better? I definitely think so. I don't think every writer has to write about, um, you know, what's wrong, whether it's um, the environment or or social justice or racism or, you know, homophobia or, what, or war in general. I, I don't think everyone should... I don't think everyone's art should be involved with, with those big questions, but I don't know any other way. <laughs> I don't know any other way. I, I write things to work through them or um, um, imagine my way through them in some in some regard. And and also because I have a lot of empathy. Not that other you know writers don't have empathy, but I, I have a lot of feelings. I feel a lot of feelings, and I and if I can have if I have a way to help others feel feelings around those issues, I don't need to give them answers or even give myself answers. It's just, it, it's, um, it's sort of, you know, it's a community building kind of thing or, or a, um, if we're, if the broader imagination is, is working on, on what we do, then perhaps maybe, maybe there's hope then. <laughs> yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Alexis M. Smith about her latest book, Merrill Island. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, well, Merrill Island, in a way, is a, an important character, uh -huh. both emotionally and and <laughs> and geographically in the book. Uh, and you mentioned that during the earthquake, an oil refinery mm -hmm. explosion happens, right? And that oil refinery explosion and then the attempts to put out the fire mm -hmm. make Merrill Island uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet this was also a big trauma for our protagonist because mm -hmm. her father worked there and died mm -hmm. in the explosion. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit about Lucy Bowen, what she's been up to, because she doesn't, she's sort of abandoned, like Merrill Island has been abandoned mm -hmm. as, as contaminated. She's sort of abandoned her, her past. Mm -hmm. And she lives on the mainland now. Uh, what has she been up to and what are mm -hmm. her concerns? Well, she has and she hasn't abandoned it, I guess. She's become an environmental journalist uh, working in Seattle. Her, she and her mother sort of escaped the islands to Seattle um, at some point after the quake when it was, when it was possible. Um, so she uh, went to school and grew up without her father and her mother remarried and um, she remarried a... a developer, <laughs> real estate developer. Um, and, uh, and Lucy herself is sort of lose, she's lost her, her steady work as a journalist and is sort of floundering, doesn't, isn't really sure what to do, isn't sure she can make it as a freelancer. And, and her mother has also, um, given her the keys to this cottage that, that they lived in, a family cottage they lived in on a, an adjacent island to Marrow Island. And so she just sort of in, in desperation also probably, um, and some desire to, to reconnect with where maybe her career started was being involved in this disaster. She goes back home to the islands 
and after you know twenty something years and hmm. and she's there and her best friend is also there and has sort of summoned her in a way and um, so there's also a reckoning there. The post earthquake Seattle that you picked <laughs> sort of reminds me of the Portland of now in the sense that it feels <laughs> like the earthquake was an excuse for a sort of a wild west of development. Mm-hmm. Um, against the common good, potentially. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, a wild free-for-all of capitalist sure, uh, development yeah. in Seattle post-earthquake. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's part of what I was saying about imagining where we would be 20 years after an earthquake, and I think probably not in a very different place. It, yeah. it seems like after the housing crisis, it seems like Wall Street and other you know, moneyed investors came in and, and uh, started grabbing up houses and property. And now we have this rental crisis and this housing crisis in a lot of cities. And, um, and I imagined that after a big disaster like that, there would be a lot of desperate people who, who couldn't afford to fix their houses that couldn't be lived in and, and that a similar thing might happen. Probably my favorite parts of the book are what happens when, when Lucy's best friend and summon her to Mm -hmm. Merrow Island, because unbeknownst to the world, there's a colony that has been set up Mm -hmm. on the island. And I love being with this colony yeah. like the, and the rituals that you invented. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about if you could, first of all, maybe describe some of these rituals, the the work prayer and, mm-hmm. and some of the other uh, things that are going on in the colony and the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I'm curious about your familiarity with intentional communities mm-hmm. or um, the research you did around intentional communities. Um, I, I actually didn't do a lot of research on intentional communities, and and, and intentionally, I, I avoided um, other novels that were, uh, you know, based on communes or um, uh, cults or anything like that. Just just because I I kind of wanted to come at it from my own um, my own gut. Like it, it's sort of the colony is um, it's started and run by this woman, uh, Sister Jay who was a, a nun and um, left because she felt she felt called to minister to the earth and um, and she was being you know maybe fenced in by her obligations to the church and uh, she's so she's a very spiritual woman but um, and there are spiritual aspects to everything they do at the colony um, but it's it's less god oriented and more earth oriented there's a, a bit of a matriarchy kind of going on there with Sister Jay at the head and and women in powerful positions. And um, there are men there as well. And um, and uh, one of the things they do is, is work prayer, which is the first thing in the morning. They get up and they each have a chore around the, uh, the farm or um, preparing food or fishing or you know, all of the different workings of the colony, everyone has, has a chore in the morning and they go silently and they do their work. And, um, as they do their work, they are, they are, um, in touch with the island and in touch with, um, being humans in space and, and working together. And, um, uh, yeah, that, that's, I think the work prayer was the first thing that came to me, um, partly because it, I've, I find it myself to be kind of a, a um, I, I was attracted to the idea, I guess, of, of living amongst people who all have a kind of um, peaceful aspect and <laughs> want to sort of wake up every morning with this goal in mind of, of all surviving together by each doing his or her part. Um, I find that really, uh, that idea, it, it's idealistic. It's, you know, 
it can't happen outside of, in a very large group of people because everyone has different goals and intentions. But, but they, there are only, I think, I forget now because I wrote it so long ago, there are about 50 of them, 40 of them or something so on the island. And, um, and it's a small enough group that they are able to do this together. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, does that give you a no, that's sense. great. That's great. And I, and I mean, when we're here, we're talking about like the collapse of publishing and the and capitalism run amok. And this island is, is really trying to create an alternate right. society, mm-hmm. but, but also a society that's, um, trying to reclaim contaminated land. Yes. So they're, yeah. they're engaged. They're not like ignoring the world of, uh, that's right. in peril, but mm-hmm. actually actively trying to, um, engage with the imperiled world at the same time. Right. Yeah. It's, that is their entire goal. It's to go somewhere that needed them the most, which was uh, this place that they had access to, which was the most important thing, but also that needed them. It needed someone to address what had happened and redress it. And, um, and they are working together amongst with scientists and, and students and the sort of like young idealistic, um, you know, activist types and um, herbalists and, you know, just a variety of people um, who maybe are not called for religious reasons, but are called just for fundamental connection to the earth kind of reasons. And using all sorts of like gray water systems and Mm -hmm. solar tech solar technology right. and yeah and i did do quite a bit of research on that even though it it really only comes in <laughs> at the periphery of the story it's not it's not um necessarily important to the plot but but yeah there's a lot of research around that and yeah. and it may it did that did make me a little hopeful sort of knowing what kind of technology is out there and what's possible well i wanted to ask you something about the uh, the imagining of the marrow colony in relationship to our region the, mm-hmm. the pacific northwest because it seems like the Northwest, at least in my mind, it seems like it attracts utopian inspirations or communities mm-hmm. um, of all sorts running the gamut mm-hmm. uh, ideologically. So uh, the dream of Cascadia, of a sort mm-hmm. of a autonomous region from Northern California to British Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, but also like the Rajneesh compound mm-hmm. in, in Oregon. And even on the right-wing side of things, you could mm-hmm. look at the Malheur occupation yeah, exactly. as a right-wing utopian fever dream of some sort. Um, But uh, do you think that is, there's something about like the Pacific Northwest ethos or history, cultural Mm -hmm. history that attracts these sorts of uh, parallel communities or alternate communities to the predominant one? Yeah, I think it's definitely, there's a romance, the the idea of the West in general, maybe not necessarily even just the Pacific Northwest, but um, there's the romance of of gathering up your kin and your your community and making that trek across the <laughs> the wilds and and setting up in in the land of milk and honey and it I I think that that um, I, I mean I find that romantic <laughs> and I lived here I, I live here and grew up here um, it it really does feel like a land of many possibilities. Um, and I think that the idea of it being in peril or being in um, when you're in a, in a city like Portland or Seattle or San Francisco now where where there are housing crises and um, and people are, say, moving from California to Portland because they can buy a house here and they can't buy one in the Bay or whatever. And, and you get these 
this, um, you know, this territorial anger from the people who are already here of, of just like, no, it's, I was here first. And, um, and, you know, of course the argument goes like, unless you were a native American, you were not here first. And, (laughs) and, you know, but that, that kind of, um, I think that that anger is stirred up because of this place and because of that romance and that everyone has that kind of romance of the Northwest, everyone who comes here, maybe, um, that, that they can carve out their own little space and, and it can be perfect. They could make it perfect in their own way. And, um, uh, yeah, I think that's why people get so, so defensive and riled up about it. Um, and I definitely was thinking about that with the island. I mean, it's a fantasy. It's a who wouldn't just jump at the chance to go to their own island and, right. and the San Juans and and just set up a set up their own community. Yeah. No, I wonder I wonder if to push that even further, if if there's a flavor to the literature it maybe in the Pacific Northwest or at least in the West around imagined futures or alternate presence in the sense that mm-hmm. there's this there seems to be a rise of bioregional mm-hmm. dystopian climate change yeah. novels. So yeah, uh Eden Lepucky's mm-hmm. uh California, California and then Claire Vey Watkins yeah. book. Mm-hmm. Um but the ones and I haven't read either of those, so I'm not sure if they fall as similar mm-hmm. to this or different, but similar to Merrill Island other Pacific Northwest writers, and I think of Ben Parzibach, mm-hmm. Sherwood Nation, yeah, who absolutely. I've had on the show and who's interviewed you, mm-hmm. um, which also puts the the uh, emphasis on what to do afterwards. Mm-hmm. But then also Ursula Le Guin, another Portland writer, mm-hmm. and Neil Stevenson in Seattle. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's an emphasis on how to create utopia out of dystopia rather than mm-hmm. just a pure dystopian novel. They're not yeah. novels that are... Um, about catastrophe as much as they seem to be about human ingenuity in the mm-hmm. face of the catastrophe. And I, I wondered if you felt like a kinship to regional writers in that sense. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great observation. I don't know that I, I ever quite connected. Um, I mean, obviously, I feel a kinship with um, Ben's book, but um, but yeah, I, I think that's a great observation. Um I definitely do. I feel like a regional writer. I'm really proud to be a regional writer. And I I, I don't know how to write something in which the landscape does not play a huge role. And I think that that is probably what is, is true with a lot of a lot of us is that we're humans, but we're tied to this landscape and we love it. And we want to be able to be responsible humans, <laughs> I guess, and maybe model that for the, the people who move here who aren't, you know, they're awed by this landscape, but they don't necessarily um, get it yet. Yeah. 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 Well, let's <laughs> let's have our listeners hear some of the prose from, okay. from Merrill Island. Okay. So one of the, the things we didn't talk about or haven't talked about yet is that the, the book is told in alternating chapters. Um, you know from the get-go that something went awry on Marrow Island with Lucy, and um, and she's sort of recalling what happened, and then also um, we're we're jumping ahead to the future from the place from which she is recalling this in the Malheur National Forest, um, where she has taken up with a park ranger, and she's she's in the woods, and she's supposed to be writing about her experience, and she's sort of. Um, Maybe, maybe not altogether with it, and you don't really know why until the end. But um, 
But yeah, so I'll read a little section from the uh, Malheur chapters. Great. That's okay. I'm taking the old mining road to the lake today. I leave a note that says, I'll be home soon on the kitchen table. There's only one note. I just keep leaving it over and over again, then pocketing it as soon as I get back. I always make it back before he finds it. It's on the table today, just in case. If something happened to me out there, Carrie would find a crumpled, weathered piece of my notebook paper with deep creases, with deep crease lines from the folding and unfolding. He would hold it in his hands, carefully, barely touching it like a suicide note. If I didn't come back, he would be the one in charge of finding me. I witnessed a rescue in my first days here, a cross-country skier who didn't report back, dogs, helicopter, volunteers in the snow with whistles. They let me volunteer, though I didn't have the training. I learned as we went. It was the most exciting thing that happened all spring, the prospect of coming across a mauled, frozen outdoorsman. That was how Carrie prepared me for the worst. Could have been a lynx, he said. I thought about this and concluded that I, was, I would always root for the lynx. But the guy was just lost. He had a dozen protein bars and some energy matches on him. He melted snow for water. He seemed irritated that it took us so long. Then the snow was gone earlier than usual. There weren't as many hard freezes, and the snowfall averages all around the state were low, despite the late season fall. When the pack isn't as deep, it can melt completely in just a few warmer than average days. Spring arrived suddenly. Now everything is blooming and hatching. The conversation around the ranger station is all almanac, all the time. Mosquito year, black fly year, drought year, fire year. You've been listening to Alexis M. Smith read from her latest novel, Merrill Island. You've mentioned the influence of Margaret Atwood for you in mm-hmm. general as a writer, yeah. but specifically around this book, her novel, Surfacing. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk about both how this novel is in conversation with Surfacing, if it is, and, sure. and your general sense of influence that you you get from Atwood? Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, uh, on a very early stage in my life, I read um, The Handmaid's Tale when I was 13 because I read in Sassy Magazine that you're, uh, if you're a feminist, then you, you have to read The Handmaid's Tale. And so I went down to the Seattle Public Library and I checked out a copy and it blew my little mind. And, <laughs> and I was sort of hooked on her ever since. And I think that what really drew me into The Handmaid's Tale, um, aside from the fact that it's a great dystopian story, and probably the very first dystopian story I'd ever read, um, was that she was Canadian and I was an Alaskan. <laughs> I grew up in Alaska. And there was a sense when I was you know, growing up in Alaska that like Alaskans don't become writers. And I remember reading uh, an interview with Margaret Atwood that said something to the same effect. She was like, you know, you know, Canadians didn't become writers. It was New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, maybe maybe you were from Los Angeles, or, but no, you definitely you had to be from New York or go to New York to become a writer. And um, she was a Canadian, and she still lived in Canada. And she wrote about um, the the landscape up there, and um, and that was sort of my initial connection to her. It, was, it wasn't necessarily The Handmaid's Tale and the fact that I was a feminist, but but just that knowing that she had done all of this, she had written all of these books and people read them and knew about them. Um, so surfacing, I read a bit later. Um, I think I was in my early twenties the first time I read it and it grabbed my imagination for some of those reasons that it's, it's the Canadian landscape. It's, um, it's a woman in the wilderness story. It's, um, you know, it's somewhat a relationship with a, a, a 
uh, missing father <laughs> story, mm-hmm. um, which I think both of my books sort of touch on, um, even though my father is, is always in my life and has, <laughs> has been a great influence on me. But um, yeah, there's this the sense of a missing parent and um, and seeking going back to where you're from and seeking a connection to it and um, and the landscape and just that relationship with the landscape. And surfacing is, it's a story about a, a woman whose father has been sort of living off the grid on this lake in, um, I think, somewhere in Quebec. And, and uh, he, she's received word that he's just, he's gone. He's not at his cabin when his supplies come. And so she goes with a couple of her, uh, a couple, her boyfriend and, and a couple friends out there to, to find out what has happened to her dad. And, um, and she's also just sort of slowly psychologically um, uh, falling apart <laughs> out in the woods. And, you know, it's, it's, she's gone back to sort of seek connection and what she's really found is much deeper. And, um, and uh, you learn some things that I don't want to reveal in case people are going to read it. Um, but uh, that was a huge influence on Marrow Island. It was very much a woman in the wilderness book. It's what happens when you're alone with a landscape, what happens when you're in close contact with a landscape that means a lot to you, um, that maybe doesn't treat you the way that you imagine it should treat you. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, that those are the, the, the big influences from... You've, writ- you've written a little bit about the female psyche and it being... Uh, like a equ- wilderness. Equated in literature, <laughs> right. mm-hmm. like the wilderness, yeah. like an untamed wilderness. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that the female psyche, like the natural wo- world, has been subjected to the male gaze mm-hmm. in literature right. and otherwise, um, mm-hmm. bent, bent on colonization and mm-hmm. exploitation. Yeah. Um, so do any books come to mind? And I guess Surfacing is probably one of them that explore the non-human world and the female psyche in a way that avoids doing that. Um, I think, I mean, I think that definitely surfacing, I think when, when the protagonist is a woman who has agency and makes choices, um, whether they're good or bad, it's, it is, um, less likely to fall into that trap of like, this is just a woman going crazy. She's just like the wilderness and she's just, she's never going to do what you expect. And, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think there's also something really empowering about that connection though, that, um, that if you are inscrutable to the male gaze, there there is some power in that. <laughs> like that maybe you cannot be penetrated or colonized in the ways that um, that patriarchy is attempting. Yeah, you know. Um, and I, you know, I think about books like um, one of my favorite books that's out of print now is *O Caledonia* by this woman Elspeth Barker who is um, Scottish. It's about a um, post-war Scotland and, and a young woman and her growing up. And you know from the beginning that she dies in kind of a horrible way in the story, and it's her life story up to age 16 when she dies. But she is just this kooky, um, obsessed-with-books girl who is always out in the wilds of Scotland um, outside her family estate, just like just becoming weirder and weirder the more she interacts like she she ends up with a um I think a is it a crow I can't remember she she gets a a wild bird pet who just like hangs on her and after she dies the crow is like like kills itself by like slamming itself against the window of her bedroom or something like that and you know it's um I think about that book because it's uh, because it's just crazy. I mean, it's, there's no logic to it to her relationship with this, the Moors and the and the 
crazy wilderness outside of her her family estate, and um, and she just subverts expectations of her family and society all the time. Hmm. Um, uh, let's see if you think of any others. Um, Tova Jansen has a great book, or Jansen. I'm not. I don't speak Swedish or, or Norwegian, so I don't know how to say it. But um, she has a great book called True Deceiver, which is about a couple of women who form a strange relationship um, in a in a rural town in Finland. And um, it's another book where women just it's their relationships with with the world at large, the, the natural world at large are so unique and so specific to them that they cannot be explained to those around them. And so they become uh, these elusive characters who, you know, one is called a witch and the other is sort of venerated um, as a, a kind of nature loving illustrator of children's books. But but um, she is just kooky in her own way. And um yeah, so I think about books like that, and uh, I, I recommend those books highly. <laughs> well, I really loved about, similarly with Merrill Island, the the plot um, is moved forward mainly by women. They mm-hmm. have, uh, women have, I mean, not that there aren't men with agency in the mm-hmm. book, but the, the the scenarios are mostly centered around some significant women in the book. But also I really liked how Lucy's bisexuality was just very matter-of-fact. Mm-hmm. in the book. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you would call it that. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say she's bisexual. Yeah. For sure. That it's just some, it's just mm-hmm. a detail of, uh, mm-hmm. I, I really appreciated the way it was just, um, part of the fabric of the world that you painted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that was intentional. Uh, it's, I guess I, it's at this point I could reveal this, but, I, um, but Isabel in Glaciers was was bisexual too, hmm. and there was originally a chapter that that talked about um, her, a relationship she had with a woman, and it was it was very, not it had nothing to do with the story with her and Spoke, and it had nothing to do really with anything. It was just a memory that was there that was um, integral to her character. But um, but my editor and not maliciously, and and I don't think at all for homophobic reasons. <clears throat> um, uh, challenged me to explain it <clears throat> or to explain her bisexuality in some way. And I thought, and I said, I don't, you know, I, I think at the time being a, a younger writer who hadn't published before, I said, well, I, I don't want to, but I'll just take out the chapter then because I just, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't want to have to explain it. It's a thing that happens <laughs> in the world. Why can't it just be? And I think if I had put my foot down and been like, no, I'm just not going to, then it would have been fine. Yeah. But um, but the, at the time, I ended up taking the chapter out, um, perhaps for other reasons, too. Um, but but yeah, I mean, this time around, it was very much like she's just going to be bisexual. That's the way it's going to be. And her attraction and love for um, Katie is going to be, you know, as as real as her attraction to Carrie. Right. Yeah. We're talking today to <laughs> Alexis M. Smith, the author of Marrow Island. Well, one of the powerful women you mentioned is the the ex-sister, mm-hmm. Sister Janet, who mm-hmm. who is the leader, charismatic leader of Marrow Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one interview, um, you were asked whether religion was important to the book, and uh-huh. your answer was not religion but spiritual accountability. And I was wondering sure, if yeah. you could talk about what that means to you, spiritual accountability and in relationship to Merrill Island. Sure. Um, I, you know, I wasn't, my parents are not, um, religious. They, they were sort of hippies and they were Baha'i for a while and they were, 
uh, you know, I went to church with friends sometimes as, as a kid, but then I ended up in Catholic school sort of randomly. And so I got this really interesting view into Catholicism and to um, uh, the sisters who ran my high school in Seattle, the Sisters of the Holy Names. And um, I got a really interesting education in social justice from them. And uh, in that they, while they were, um, you know, against abortion, which, and I was very much pro-choice, they were also against the death penalty. And there was a kind of consistency to their way of thinking. And that was the kind of spirituality I wanted to approach, um, not necessarily the organized religion with all of the, the rules and the, you know, the Pope saying on high, like, this is what we think. Um, this is what we do. Uh, it was more of the that that component that leads you to go out in the world and do something um, to make things better for other people. And um, and I mean, that's probably part of the reason why I picked an, an ex-nun as the character, because she comes with all of this. Um, she 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 comes from a patriarchal system and she breaks out of it to do what she, what she really believes God wants her to do. And, um, and, and she doesn't expect everyone else in the colony to have that same mission from God. She just expects them to, to have the, the mission for whatever their reasons are, um, to, because they know they, they need to leave the planet in a better place or because, um, uh, because they want to get out of poverty or what, you know, whatever it is. And, um, that they're, their accountability to the planet that they live on um, is their spirituality in that way, or is their religion in that way. Like, if, if you're accountable to the people around you and their well-being, then why can't you be accountable to the planet and its well-being? And, yeah, I mean, that's that's the idea I was going for. Yeah, and I was curious about the role you see um, direct action or alternate economies play in, in, in spiritual accountability. We know that mm-hmm. when you read Merrill Island, you, you'll discover that this community with all its good intentions isn't exactly following the laws of the day. Right. So, yeah. um, so there can be conflicts between, mm-hmm. between, um, what's legally, what, what's your vision and, and also right. just the question of if you believe deeply in a cause, what are you willing to do for the cause? Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that they, I wanted to come up against that because there are there are things that they do that um, they do because they believe they're right, but though they are legally in the wrong, um, the society around them believes that they're wrong. One of those things has to do with um, not giving too much away, I hope, but the use of psychedelics, um, which are still, I believe, a, a, um, Schedule Three. Is that what it is? The, I'm they're, sure. they're, they're, I'm, the federal government considers psychedelics to be some of the most dangerous kinds of drugs, although, um, you know, the history of experimenting, the government experimenting with them is one thing, but um, people at large just, like, picking mushrooms is another and and um, and uh, selling them or using them. And uh, so that's, that's one way in which the community is sort of um, coming up against uh, society at large. And I think that there's a lot of... There are a lot of places where where um, people need to to make decisions to take direct action, and whether it's um, marching in the street and um, uh, you know blocking traffic, and and uh, or it's taking over 
um, a, an empty lot and turning it into a garden or um, planting fruit trees on public property or whatever it is. Like there are there are ways of of making a point and um, standing up for your beliefs that are that are also probably technically illegal and and yeah. They, they do a few of those. They, <laughs> they brush up against a lot of those things on the island. Well, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned some of the things that they're doing that aren't accepted by the society at large. Mm-hmm. And there is a mystery at the heart yeah. of Merrill Island, one a, a, a unrevealed secret. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but there's also, because of what Merrill Island is doing and their tenuous relationship to the mainland, perhaps... Um, Lucy coming to the island to visit her friend is a little bit fraught because she's mm-hmm. not just coming as a friend. She's also coming as a journalist, right. which seems to add another layer to mm-hmm. this tension of her visit because mm-hmm. we we and them can't be sure exactly what ultimately is going to come from the visit. Right. There is a, a I, I think it's fair to say it because it happens early in the book, but there's a, a missing... Um, resident of, of Orwell Island, which is the island that Lucy's cottage, family cottage was on. It's um, next to Marrow Island. And and she has to discover his sort of connection to the colony. She knows that, that they, she finds out that they have known each other and have been in communication. And, um, and it has to do with the sort of um, tenuousness of their legal occupation of this parcel of land on the island. And that's coming back to sort of um, what we were talking about in, in terms of like wanting your peace, and and they're technically squatting on this land, and and for a while have had the permission of the people who own the land, sort of quietly, um, and that's coming into um, it, that is in in danger of it, they're in danger of losing what all that they have worked for, and. Um, and so that sets up a sort of mystery there um, with this missing guy and what he has to do with it. And um, yeah, what was your question again? <laughs> no, that, that was good. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the things that I think was really uncanny when you describe this scenario with the Marrow Colony is that while you're writing this book, um, another group in the real world uh-huh. is uh, is wanting to occupy land uh-huh. in, in Malheur, uh, mm-hmm. bird wildlife refuge, um, which is a set, not exact setting, but a close setting to what you have for the other part of your book. Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. the Malheur national forest is, is this other part of your book that takes place mm-hmm. after the Marrow colony mm-hmm. event and, and is told mm-hmm. retros and then looks back upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the coincidence is uncanny to me that, um, you're, you're looking at different conceptions of, of how to steward the land. Mm-hmm. And you're writing this book that takes place in a part of Oregon uh, that probably nobody had heard about prior right. to this occupation. And mm-hmm. then uh, very different sort of utopian mm-hmm. conception of land mm-hmm. um, takes over p- public land in, right. in Oregon. And it becomes news. I was just curious about your thoughts about it and whether yeah. you welcomed this this intersection with the news or whether you <laughs> felt like it was... Uh, something that you wish wasn't intruding in the, oh, in the no. narrative of the I, story. I was actually, I exchanged emails with the publicist saying, like, is it is it sick that I am excited that people are going to know about <laughs> vaguely where the Malheur is now? <laughs> and, you know, she's like, no, she's like, I would be worried if you weren't a little bit excited about that, you know? Um, yeah. 
And I, I mean, in that sense, I was, you know, that anytime anything is in the broader imagination, it, it helps, I think, um, even though in my story, it's in the, the National Forest, which is actually, I think, 100 miles or so from the um, refuge. But, um, but that region is right now going through a lot of um, sort of political turmoil regarding the public land and, um, and just into the north of there, you know, whether or not to, to name, um, is it the Owyhee Canyon they want to name a, um, wants to be, the government wants to set it aside as, as uh, not as a refuge, but um, as a national monument or something I, like I that. So. And, and there's a lot of contention about whether or not that should happen and, um, so it's yeah, I mean it's definitely, it's it's a lively place for debates on, on uses of public land and um, and what the rural communities actually get to say about that. The people who actually live there, and not just the tourists who come and visit or use the land, and and then also with the government workers who obviously live out in those communities too, and what their role is. And and in the book, I I definitely. Um, you know, I, I uh, dated a wildland firefighter. Um, I've known people who've done uh, park ranger work and stuff like that. And and so I definitely come at that perspective as they do the best work that they can with with sort of the, both the bureaucracy that they're, they're working under and also um, the interface with the public and that it's a really hard job and that sometimes these crises happen where they, they have to... Um, sort of be more the government. They have to, they have to um, group, they have to become a group that is telling people what to do and how they can and cannot be with that land. And fires are a, a great example of that and, um, and something that is just we're going to have more and more of um, in the coming years, um, probably. And so having a fire in the book was, uh, was you know, something that I thought... Um, I always, I kind of knew that there was always going to be the, another natural disaster in the book that was that was going to sort of bookend and, um, and uh, it, I think that it really it it's one of those things that that definitely um, puts into relief the the relationships that people have and that's I mean that was sort of the whole point of the book was how do these relationships change when when big things happen. Hmm. Well, in addition to the the fondness that I have to being in the colony and, and experiencing their rituals. The other thing that I really admired about Mare Island was the way you portrayed death, both in the colony and I thought some of the more moving um, parts of the rituals were around mm -hmm. death, but the way death is portrayed as, as part of life, and, and mm -hmm. I mean that in, in two different ways, and mm -hmm. I'm just curious about your thoughts about them. The first one is sort of the existential way mm -hmm. of um, death is part of life, right. uh, no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and without mischaracterizing your book, which has a ton of young people in it also who are activists and involved in the book, there's also old people with old bodies, and we have people with dying bodies, and we have mm -hmm. deathbed scenes, and we have taking care of people who are are dying, the unglamorous acts of caretaking, mm -hmm. um, uh, scenes which seem rarely portrayed in literature, I think. There was something mm -hmm. uh, very refreshing to see that evoked in a book mm. for me I definitely I know I mean I know exactly the scenes you're talking about <laughs> um I, I think that while I was writing this book my grandmother was dying and she, she had sort of been slowly dying of congenitive heart failure for years 
and it was torture for her. You know, she was in her prime a really lively person and a leader and the matriarch of our family and traveled a lot and was a volunteer and um, did so much for her family and for the communities that she was a part of. And and um, in some ways, Sister J is, is modeled on her. Um, but I, I guess knowing that she was going to pass, that, that this was that this was a thing that was inevitable, it was, it was going to happen, she wasn't going to be in the world anymore, and watching her deteriorate, um, it made me think a lot about what, how, how we spend time with people in the end, um, what is important to them. Uh, it's sort of a mysterious, when you're looking at it from the outside as a younger person and, and you feel like death is really far away for you, it's it's really mysterious. What is you know that my grandmother couldn't articulate a lot toward the end. So so it could it's not like I could ask her or wanted to ask her like what is going through your head like how is what are you thinking about what are you feeling existentially like uh, what is this process like and I, I I definitely felt like with the larger themes of the book of sort of the um, disasters and death and and resurrection or that 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 process of what happens just before and just after is really um uh it's fascinating to me and it's really i think a place where more people should be um asking questions and looking should be i, I shouldn't say should be but you know it's i'm, I'm still I'm really glad you did <laughs> but i mean it was really refreshing to have that looked at closely for, i thought i well i'm glad yeah. <laughs> Well, so, so the other the other way in which I the life death situation seemed interesting to me was um, the way death was encroaching on life because of environmental destruction, mm-hmm. the overhumanization of of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, like on a, a while ago, in a different radio program, I interviewed the the environmental activist and writer Sandra Steingraber, mm-hmm. who um, who had written a memoir about giving birth to her first mm-hmm. child, um, right. and talked about how human breast milk was the most contaminated food mm-hmm. on the planet because we're at the top of the food chain, right. bioaccumulation, and it's a fatty food, which mm-hmm. is where toxins accumulate. And nevertheless, even with that fact, it is the, still the most life-sustaining food mm-hmm. for human babies, yeah. uh, even being the most polluted. Um, and there's that sense of the of not being able to pull, pull that apart in your book, the, right. um, yeah. the toxins and the the colony in almost intentionally planting itself on contaminated land. Mm-hmm. I mean, where else are you going to plant yourself right. to start a, a ideological right. revolution of some sort? Right. And, and also the, the idea that it's this island may seem so toxic. It may seem so toxic that no one could live there, but our entire planet is suffering from the same toxicity. It's not like we're that island is separate from. It is part of and connected to. And so this questioning of why would they go there if they knew they were putting themselves in danger of becoming ill from the toxicity and and that question of like they're just are they just hastening um, hastening a a probability that everyone else is subjected to as well as like are why judge that decision if what they're doing is is going there to make it better um, why not let them do it when, and mushrooms, which are play a big role in right. this book, mm-hmm. and you mentioned the psychedelic mushrooms, but mushrooms <laughs> in a larger sense play a big role in this book and seem like this perfect symbol. 
in a way mm-hmm. because they're decomposers and right. detoxifiers mm-hmm. and immune stimulators right uh, and also deadly poisons and, and yeah, bringer, exactly. bringers of visions mm-hmm. um, they're, they're, um, <laughs> and they're they're being used by the colony and right. as one of the main tools mm-hmm. so, um, I, I think that, I think that they are the mushrooms really are the prime symbol because of their relationship to death they're they're sort of a bridge between the two um, between life and death it's it's they bring more life from death and um, the processes that that mycelium go through are um, it's it's pretty incredible when you start doing research about about what like what mycelial colonies will do in a forest in an ecosystem um, there's you know there's more research that they're helping bees avoid colony collapse and things like that so um, there's, but at the same time, yes, I mean, they, things have to die for them to do their thing and live. And, um, and they have their, the mycelium are almost like, like brain cells where they, they send out information and they process information and they can communicate between, um, plants. And why can't they communicate between species? You know, why can't they communicate to humans as well? And I, so I think that that was a really, um, I think that, that that symbol is probably my favorite and the, the most important for the book itself. And the islands might be symbols or, you know, um, uh, the wilderness might be a symbol, but, but uh, mushrooms are definitely the most important. They're at the heart. And their capacity to be involved in land remediation, mm-hmm. is that based in yeah. the scientific it is, yeah. reality? Mm-hmm. It is. Yes, from um, uh, Paul Stamets uh, from up in Olympia, who's written many books about Mushrooms. It's where I learned about um, um, mycelial remediation, micro-remediation. Um, it's, of course, in my book, is more of a fantasy, the, the idea that you would deploy it sort of large scale to remediate an, an environment. But, um, but I mean, it feels like an imminent possibility to me. Like, why yeah. not? What 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 harm could be done? <laughs> <laughs> but also, I don't know if this stretches the metaphor, but it felt in this in a way like there was a parallel emotional remediation that Lucy was trying mm-hmm. to do by going back to Merrill Island. She's yeah. trying to reclaim this uninhabitable emotional mm-hmm. space around exactly. the death of her dad. Yeah, it's at the same astute. time. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. So can you um, can you tip your hand to anything that you're working on now? Um, j- only very vaguely because it's still quite murky to me. Um, I refer to it as soup sometimes, like in my brain. Sometimes it's soup, sometimes it's stew, um, as it's becoming more solid and real. But uh, I, I think the next book is going to take on patriarchy in a, a bigger way than um, than I've ever taken on in fiction. Um, and part of that is uh, recent events. It feels like things have really sort of uh, you know, when I was a young feminist in the 90s and it was the year of the woman and, um, you know, you could go to music festivals and buy pro-choice T-shirts and uh, uh, there wasn't activism so much as, as this almost like pop culture um, liberalism and uh, pop culture feminism with Riot Girls. And um, and now it, it feels like we are so far from that Um not to ignore any advances, but it, it feels like there's been some slippage and, um, and this sort of malicious anti-woman, um, 
and anti-gay and um, anti-trans. And there's a lot of sort of around gender, there's just been um, a lot of pain and death and and um, a lot of fear is coming out of it with, you know, bathroom laws. And, and I think all of, a lot of it just comes down to uh, misogyny. And, and I, I feel like I need to tackle it. And so I'm, I'm working on working on that. Well, you had <laughs> mentioned that you'd mentioned with Merrill Island in other interviews that it started with a dream. Yeah. And so you had a sort of a, an, an image or a set of images that, mm-hmm. that prompted it. And, and how, what, how do you find an entry point into this, this huge topic of confronting misogyny in, in your next book? Is there an, is there a entryway that is mm. more of a, a, an image or a scenario that you start with not to push you to reveal too much? <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's definitely this time I didn't have a specific dream that sort of laid out a plot for me, but, um, but I am sort of drawn to the narratives of many different women that I know who have, whether they're in academia or the arts or, um, or they're just working, working class, you know, um, uh, working retail, uh, just situations where, where they have come up against just completely unexpected sexism and, um, and what we do about it. And so I have some images that have come sort of out of, out of what these women's lives are like. And, um, and I don't, I don't, nothing that's concrete enough or vivid enough that I, that I could lay it out here. It's still in that, but I, I need to do more dreaming on it. Yeah. Let the images well, I, look, <laughs> I, look, I look forward to it. Well, thanks. Thanks for being on um, Between the Covers again. Thanks for having me again. It's always great. We we're talking today to the author, Alexis M. Smith, about her latest book, Merrill Island. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.